this is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. If you think the work is done because Rome has been overturned, you're mistaken. The work is just starting. The battle for reproduction rights is on display right now in Washington, D.C. Today is the March for Life in our nation's capital, one of two big rallies this weekend. Sunday is the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Right to life is a feeling like the work of destroying equality in America isn't quite done yet. Friday, the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade becoming the law of the land was marked by a March for Life rally in Washington, D.C. The irony was only made worse by the smugness of those in attendance, reveling in the misery that the overturning of Roe has caused so many of their fellow Americans. Kaylee's doctor was clear. When he's born, he's going to suffocate to death. He may live for a few minutes, he may live for an hour, but he is going to die. Her doctors said they could not perform an abortion, noting in her records, termination is not legal in the state of Texas. I remember her saying, you know, the course of action that I would have taken with a patient a year ago would be to advise them to terminate. She said that is the safest course of action for you, and it's the most humane course of action for him. The real-life consequences of the Supreme Court's grievous Dobbs decision are only just coming to light. But you know what's still a mystery? Who leaked Judge Alito's draconian draft opinion in the first place? Who could it be? My guess, it was Alito himself. Though he tried to place the blame on Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who probably had nothing to do with it, but we may never know because the Supreme Court of the United States just can't figure it out. The court broke faith with the women of America. It broke faith with the continuity of law. The decision was devastating. It's not the leak of the decision that was one of the worst events in the history of the Supreme Court of the United States. It was the decision. It appears that the justices were interviewed during the court's inside investigation, but there were no sworn affidavits. I mean, that's fucking weird. And the investigation was run by the court's marshal who's basically a security guard, and shockingly, she came to no real conclusions. So why can't we launch an independent investigation and find the culprit? We also need investigation into the High Court's dubious ethics. And Jeannie Thomas, I mean, just investigate the fuck out of her. But we need to face facts. The facts are that the court isn't just compromised, it's working directly in opposition to the will of the American people. How are these lawless lawmakers still enjoying lifetime appointments? Fire the whole lot of them and let's just start over. That's my opinion. From nearly all-out bans to legal in some cases to completely protected with expanded access. The only way to restore the protections uh, of Roe is for Congress to pass a national law codifying the right to choose. The Right to Life movement likes to say that their work has just begun now that 26 million women living in America live in a state where abortion is banned. But boy, are they unpopular. But as per usual, Republicans have no clue how to read a room. Remember the midterms? I guess they don't because the House is already taking up extreme measures to criminalize women who lose a pregnancy to miscarriage. A person who performs or attempts to perform an abortion commits the offense of criminal abortion. 
Criminal abortion is a Class C felony. Any person other than the mother who intentionally destroys the life of an unborn child is guilty of a Class H felony. An abortion may be performed by a physician when necessary in professional judgment to prevent the pregnant female's death. When I first read the law, I interpreted the law as meaning there are exceptions for um, preventing maternal death, rape, and incest. When you actually read the law, it says that they are affirmative defenses, which means that those are not exceptions. What that means is that you are charged with an abortion, you have to go to court and prove justification. So instead of innocent until guilty, you are actually guilty until you're proven innocent. I mean, how fucking insane is that? Women haven't just lost their rights to reproductive health in 17 states, they've lost their privacy. And now, a miscarriage could send you to jail. So do me a favor, remind me again, what country do we live in? They're coming now for abortion pills too. Republicans hate women, it's just plain and simple. Now the debt ceiling might seem complicated, but let's think about it like this. Say you've opened a Chase Sapphire card with a $10,000 limit, and you've maxed it out on, I don't know, Gucci handbags and laser facials. <laughs> then, you get screwed because you have to pay for your kid's new glasses because his dumb teacher says he's having trouble reading in class. <laughs> and when you can't get that teacher fired, you have to get the bank to raise your credit limit or else your husband will find out and you promised him that you were done stealing credit card numbers. And that is pretty much the situation America's in. Last week, Republicans in the House thought it would be really fun to default on our debt. And we can't say this enough. The bill is due, and the money has already been spent. This has absolutely nothing to do with future spending. And if Congress defaults on our debt, the American people will be the ones to pay, just like last time. But the persistent fucking lie Republicans are trying to tell the public, it's absolutely absurd. Uh, what's so fascinating, though, and I'm just, I would, I would love somebody to ask, Kevin McCarthy, I'd love somebody to ask these Republicans who were suddenly born again, uh, balanced budgeters. Uh, I, I'd love to ask them, where were they when Donald Trump was president? Where were they when they controlled the House? Where were they when they controlled the Senate? Where were they when they controlled the White House? Where were they when they controlled all three? Let me tell you where they were. They were right there, pigs at the trough. Now under Trump, 7.5 trillion, and that's trillion with a fucking T. Dollars were added to the deficit, and Republicans said not a goddamn thing about it. So why don't they just shut the fuck up now? The budget hasn't been balanced since Bill Clinton, by the way, a Democrat. Kevin McCarthy's petty little band of MAGA terrorists are already trying to hold the country hostage. Today, it's the debt ceiling. Tomorrow, it's... Frankly, I have no idea, but I'm glad to hear that the White House is now saying that they will not negotiate with Republicans on this. It's always been the policy of the United States not to negotiate with terrorists. Act two of No Apologies, starring Team Coco Montrese. I can't wait to see how this turns out. Now I must say, I'm sorry that the first drag queen elected to Congress is George Santos. I've always known him as Anthony DeVolder. I've yeah. never known him as George Santos. I also knew him as uh, Anthony Zabrowski. 
Yes, he knew him as Devolder or Zabrowski, but this trickster is known by many names. The Norse called him Loki. In West Africa, he is Anansi, the spider. To the Navajo, he is Coyote. And the ancient Mayans called him that lying asshat. Like Trump, little George gives a bad name to, well, just about everything that he's fucking associated with. You're also being investigated by the House Ethics Committee. Are, are you worried? Well, why would I be? I have nothing to hide. My name is George Santos. Mm -hmm. I'm seven feet tall. <laughs> I invented baseball. And the Avengers is based on my friend group. Now, I'm not gonna dwell on Santos, except to say that he is exactly who the Republicans are right now. They're chronic liars. They're fucking cheaters. Remorseless, cold-hearted, and yes, they're closeted. I'm looking at you, Lindsey Graham. And for those of you who haven't heard the story about Santos stealing $3,000 from a veteran's dying dog's GoFundMe, I mean, just Google it. But suffice it to say, the dog passed anyway. And the veteran is heartbroken. And George Santos, well, he's still on Capitol Hill making policy and passing laws. But I'm telling you, it's just a matter of time before Lady Justice has her way with Lady Santos. And let me remind you, tick, 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 George. DeSantis is said to embody what many pundits have deemed, either critically or approvingly, Trumpism without Trump. Trumpism without Trump. What does that mean exactly? Well, I guess first we need to discuss what exactly Trumpism is. Here's how I would articulate it succinctly. Trumpism is a political tendency catering to the deep visceral sense that we used to run things until they came along and took that control away. That's it. And now they run things and we need someone strong, powerful, potent, who will take the country back so we can run it and make it great again. Now, Nikki Haley just announced she's considering a run for the presidency on Friday. Numbers are still looking grim for Liz Cheney and Mike Pompeo, well, He's still got the fucking stink of Trump on him. But the other bizarre character that I can't believe anyone would even consider for president is of course Ron DeSantis, who just claimed that, and I quote, there is no place in Florida for African-American studies. We reject this woke ideology. We will never surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. But it is Florida's schools and university that its governor, universities that its governor is really trying to refashion an, an anti-woke image. DeSantis has just packed the board of Florida's most progressive public college with hand-picked allies. He's aiming to turn new college into a conservative Christian school. These new board members include Chris Rufo, who's orchestrated the right-wing attack on critical race theory. And Rufo is straightforward about his goals. Quote, we have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. I mean, how pray tell is this fucking racist gonna get on a national stage and convince anyone that he's qualified to run the country when he runs his state like a fucking plantation? Also, they don't call him Death Santis for nothing. Ron's handpicked COVID-19 advisor doesn't take vaccines, no. But he did encourage people to, and I quote again, reach out and call to Jesus and seek first the kingdom of God at a state-sponsored DeSantis event on Friday. Mandates and policies based upon federal health officials' recommendations over the past few years have left many feeling powerless 
angry, and confused. So however, these challenging, seemingly upside down years have brought many of us, including myself, closer in our faith with our Heavenly Father. And I wanna encourage you, I wanna, in recognition of that, encourage you to reach out and call out to Jesus and seek first the kingdom of God. Oh, I mean, seriously, scratch your head, folks, because everything seems to be normal in Florida. I mean, seriously, nothing to see there. Please join us on Saturday, January 21st in Fayetteville, North Carolina. She loved that state and so do I. As we celebrate the life of Diamond, she lived it in a incredible way and we're going to have a wonderful celebration and ceremony. All of Diamond's families and Silk, we love Silk, her sister. She loved her sister so much and they loved each other and they really love the world. When they say everything Trump touches turns to shit, they aren't kidding. Trump's lawyers usually have to learn the hard way that working for Donald will ruin your reputation, destroy your livelihood, and possibly, like me, send you to jail. And no, I'm not speaking about me. I'm talking about Trump's latest victim, his lawyer, the bumbling buffoon Alina Haba. You love to see it. A blistering rebuke of Donald Trump. A federal judge in Florida forcing the former president to pay nearly $1 million for a, quote, political lawsuit brought against Hillary Clinton for, quote, revenge. In that lawsuit, the former president alleged Clinton orchestrated a malicious conspiracy against him during the 2016 campaign. The judge dismissed the suit and was unsparing in his assessment of the claim and plaintiff Trump. Trump and Hobba were admonished by a judge on Thursday and slapped with sanctions of nearly a million dollars for filing a frivolous lawsuit against Hillary Clinton and others on Trump's enemy hit list. And then on Friday, Alina the buffoon Haba had the good sense to withdraw their frivolous lawsuit. This time, the lawsuit against the New York Attorney General, our unsinkable Attorney General, Letitia James. Lest they of course be smacked with yet another sanction and yet another fine, which of course Trump will just go on and he will make a claim to his supporters, hey I need your help Mr. Patriot or Miss Patriot. It's just another day in Trump land. Tonight, the woman who may be Trump's biggest threat when he leaves office, I'm talking about the Attorney General of New York, Democrat Letitia James. She is leading a civil probe of the Trump Organization right now, which is clearly on Trump's mind. He has singled out the Attorney General by name in his 46-minute long rant about election fraud. Yesterday saying in part, I hear that these same people that failed to get me in Washington have sent every piece of information to New York so that they can try to get me there. And all, and all it's been is a big investigation in Washington and New York and any place else they can investigate because that's what they want to do. They want to take not uh, want to take not me, but us down. And we can never let them do that. And not surprisingly, Donald withdrew his suit, accusing Miss James of waging a war of intimidation and harassment against him on the very same day he was due to respond to the AG's bid to have the whole case tossed out. Like the classic, you can't break up with me because I'm breaking up with you, Trump's bogus lawsuit went on to say that James's investigation into his business dealings was personal and all for political gain. I mean, seriously, Donald, yada, yada, yada. But then he goes on and he says that James was trying to, and I quote, gain control of his global private enterprise. 
As you may recall, James sued Trump, his kids, and the Trump Organization for a base of $250 million in September over tax fraud and all sorts of real estate funny business. So yeah, it must feel like James has got control over Donald's business and everything else. Now Tish has been investigating Donald since 2019 and there's apparently nothing that he can do to stop her. That man in the White House who can't go a day uh, uh, without threatening our fundamental rights. Yes, we need to focus on Donald Trump and his abuses. We need to follow his money. We need to find out where he's laundered money. We need to find out whether or not he's engaged in conspiracy. In Judge Middlebrook's brilliant and scorching 45-page rebuke of Trump's lawsuit against Hillary, he had some choice words for the Trump team, and now I'm going to quote his. Here, we are confronted with a lawsuit that should never have been filed, which was completely frivolous, both factually and legally, and which was brought in bad faith for an improper purpose, he adds later. Mr. Trump is a prolific and sophisticated litigant who is repeatedly using the courts to seek revenge on political adversaries. He is the mastermind of strategic abuse of the judicial process, and he cannot be seen as a litigant blindly following the advice of a lawyer. He knew full well the impact of his actions. Now, good for him, because true words have rarely ever been spoken. And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa for the very first time, and it's my great pleasure to have her, Nicole Wallace. Nicole is one of the one-time political operatives turned television host and best-selling author. She is currently the anchor of the MSNBC news and politics show, Deadline, White House, and the former co-host of The View, alongside her friend and fellow activist, Rosie Perez. Once upon a time, she was a member of the White House staff under George Bush, and she campaigned with John McCain during his 2008 bid for the presidency against Barack Obama. Wallace has written three best-selling books, including Madam President, released in 2015. And most recently, Wallace was an executive producer on the MSNBC primetime special, Ukraine, Answering the Call, which also served as a fundraiser to support Ukraine in the midst of this Russian invasion. I mean, this is really a great conversation, so let's go to it now. Okay, so Nicole, it's great to have you on the show. It's great because... Normally, I am your hostage on the Nicole Wallace show on MSNBC. Now I have you for one hour here on Mea Culpa, and I'm honored. I'm happy to be here. I, I don't, um, I hope the other podcasts, I usually, podcasts are so long, you know, like, like you're never on my show for a whole hour. So I don't, I don't have time to do it. I've been on for half, I've been on for half hour. That's true. I could easily do an hour on your show. But it's, it's exciting to have this chunk of time. with Yeah, it is. So look, maybe some of my listeners don't know this about you, but you were a senior advisor to John McCain during the 2008 presidential run. Right. And I understand that you didn't end up voting in that election because, and I'm going to quote, this is from you, Sarah Palin gave you pause. 
<laughs> so when did you figure out that you weren't really a Republican anymore? It's just funny to me that I was that restrained um, whenever I said that. You know, I think that it had, I mean, you know this, all politics are relative. No one is choosing anyone in a vacuum. You're making a choice between A and B. And um, I worked for George W. This won't be popular with a lot of my viewers, and I know that, and they know this about me, but I believed in him. I believe in him still. And I'm not saying everything we did was perfect, but when we made mistakes, they were from an honest place. Um, and I felt that way about John McCain, and I feel that way about John McCain also. Those feelings did not extend to Sarah Palin. And so at the end of the day, I, I didn't vote for the ticket. Well, look, I don't know if you know this, but actually in 2008, Woody Johnson had come to the office, gone to Trump's office, yeah. and said, I need you to raise me some money for John McCain and Sarah Palin. Yeah. To which, of course... Trump immediately called me to his office, and there I am sitting, and I've known Woody for many, many years. He's actually a pretty decent guy. Is he? Um, yeah, he is. And he said, I need you to raise money for John McCain and Sarah Palin. And so I turned around and I said, well, I kind of have a problem with that because I'm a Democrat. <laughs> and he was like, so Donald said, yeah, but I'm not asking you to do it for you. I'm telling you to do it for me. Yeah. And so I raised a half a million dollars wow. for McCain in probably three or four days. Wow. And yeah. And then um, Woody came by and he was like, can you? I'm like, I missed. I said, boss, I'm not doing any more. All right. I got to be honest with you. You know, we've you reached the goal that you were asked to do. We went to the Waldorf Astoria where there was um, uh some event for them. And I will tell you a funny story. So John McCain's mom, I'm sitting with her at the table. Yeah. She was hysterical. So it was, you know, look, at the time she was like 92 years yeah. old. And she was, a. so she goes, so young man, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm Michael Cohen. I work for Mr. Trump. I'm one of the lawyers. I'm executive vice president of his company. And she goes, Oh, that's wonderful. You look like such a nice young man. I said, well, some people say yes, some people say no. If you spoke to my mom, she'd tell you no. So she goes, John is my boy. So I said, oh, my gosh, Mrs. McCain, that's, how are you? So she says, good, good, good. About two minutes later, she comes walking back over to the table, sits down, and she goes, hi. She goes, I'm Mrs. McCain. <laughs> It was, it was so, it was so funny. She was such a sweet lady. Like literally two minutes later. Yeah. She, she forgot that she had met me. I realized I wasn't so memorable. <laughs> I don't know about that, but she was, she was cool. And it was, it was amazing having her around. Um, the whole family was really neat to work for. Um, some of the legacy has been muddied up, you know, with the politics of this moment. Um, but he, he was iconic and his mother was too. She always had the paper with her. She was doing a crossword I and mean, she was sharp as a tack. It was great. Yeah. But you know what was really funny? She said to me when she returned the second time, <laughs> shakes her head. She goes, I don't think he's going to win. John knew he wasn't going to win. I think that, um, look, part of it is he had this sort of dark realism. I think that it wasn't lost on him that, um, then Senator Obama was 
was both immensely talented and a political phenom. And I think John being such a creature of the media understood the phenom part um, and understood, you know, President Obama's moment in history. And I don't think John thought he was going to win. Most of our calls as senior staffers, and we would often be sitting together and John would call one. And if we didn't pick up, he'd call the other. And most of our calls with him were sort of boosting his spirits and trying to get him through those final weeks of the campaign. So it's funny because... She didn't blame the potential loss on John. Yeah. She really blamed it on Sarah, um, wow. on Palin, because she was like, yeah, she goes, I just don't think he's going to win. He goes, she goes, I don't like her. <laughs> I just think, I think she's just not right. And it was, I just thought it was very interesting. And, you know, I guess mothers, only mothers can say things like that that you want, you know? Yeah, but. only mothers can say stuff like that. I, I think with sort of the, the perspective of time, there were all sorts of problems. I think I think even Trump thought she was nuts, which is saying something, um, Sarah Palin. But, um, but I, I think it was, you know, history was sort of sweeping things in other directions. My other, you know, beloved former boss didn't make things any easier for John McCain running after eight years of, of Bush. But I, I don't know. I don't yeah. think it was Sarah Palin fault. Yeah, it was, it, was, it, was com- it was comical. And she was busy there running around, hugging everybody, jumping in, drove her husband crazy because she's very flirty. You know, like when she gets in there for a hug, she gets in there for a hug. And it's funny because they always talk about Joe Biden as a hugger, right? Like an inappropriate hugger. She gets in there almost to the point like one leg goes up. She, you, know, you, you end up lifting her a little bit. The husband's sitting there off onto the side, giving any, you know, anybody like an evil eye and so on. But she gets right in there, the hairspray and all, right into the mouth. You are such an observer <laughs> of human behavior. She gave me a hug. So I know it. I still smell I still smell the Aquanet. <laughs> so so Nicole, let me ask you this. Because you've right, so you've seen now the world from both sides of the aisle. And I imagine that both sides lie. I mean, when I say that both sides lie, both sides really fucking lie. Like to a point that has probably never been seen before in US history. I think I know what the right is lying about, which is basically, I mean, everything. Um, But what do you think that the left gets wrong? And what do we want to face that would make us better in the long run if we did? Yeah, look, I don't know that the left lies so much as the left deludes. Like the, the, the right lies to the country and their base and the media. The left lies to themselves, right? They trust the institutions. They revert back to the political norms. They believe in political gravity. They think things will run their course. And I I fundamentally disagree with that theory of the case. I think that the combination of the two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and an economy that regardless of your party does not feel equal to everybody, I think the old Republican party bucket of of policies that I advocated for and was a part of sort of ran their course. And I think Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan, instead of renewing them, kind of went back to the same, you know, um, same way to sort of tap the political adrenaline and it was tapped out. And so I think that Trump deserves a lot of the blame, but not all the blame. I think Trump came in and fundamentally rewired American politics. And I think that what the left 
I don't know that the left lies to their voters. They certainly don't do it intentionally. I think the left is notoriously earnest, too earnest for the moment. But I think they lie to themselves in trusting that the institutions are stronger that they are, than they are, that the norms will snap back, and that and that the, the right will run out of audacity. The, the right isn't correcting after four years of Trump. The right is devolving further. Well, there's a lot of fighting going on on the conservative side between those that want to try to bring the party back, to take the party away from Trumpism and bring it back to being a Republican party of the past. Well, I think Mitt Romney for one, Adam Kinzinger for another. Of course, he's now gone. I think you see people like Liz Cheney, you know, who wanted to do the same thing. I think there are plenty of Republicans uh, that really do. I think even I... And, you know, I'm not a fan at all. In fact, I despise him. But I think even Ron DeSantis is working very hard right now to sort of separate himself away from this notion of Trumpism. It's still devoid of a lot of of any empathy for anyone other than, of course, the people that support him. But at the same time, he is trying to separate himself away from Trump and Trumpism and then just be, we'll call it the wild right-wing candidate of the Republican Party. Yeah, but I don't think he's trying to go, I don't think he's trying to revert back to anything that resembles the Republican Party of Mitt Romney or Paul Ryan or George Bush or John Boehner. I think he's taking Trumpism and sort of drilling down and sort of drilling for a different, you know, well, I don't, I don't think he's trying. I, I agree he's trying to separate himself. I think that's right. But in some ways, that's scarier. Look, I think Ron DeSantis is very scary. I think he is a smarter, slicker, more devious, which is hard to imagine. Donald Trump 2.0. Because one thing that DeSantis, or as we like to call him here, Amea culpa, Death Santis, um, one of the things that he's actually realized and something I talk about in the book, Revenge, which is Donald Trump has created a playbook. And we know the result of the Donald Trump play. But what if hypothetically you could tweak it and you could tweak it to the next time that you win? That's the danger because Death Santis is smart enough to be able to tweak it in a way that could ultimately turn the United States into something like a handmaid, a handmaid's tale type of government. Well, and the most dangerous thing about DeSantis, and I don't know if Democrats realize this, is if you go to Florida, Democrats in Florida approve of DeSantis's handling of COVID as well. Democrats are part of the DeSantis coalition in Florida if they are small business owners and they're glad that the shutdowns didn't go on, if they have kids in school and they're glad that their kids had a place to go and aren't suffering from educational and social and mental and emotional deficits. So the, the danger of DeSantis is that politically in Florida, he's built a coalition that is much broader than Donald Trump. Donald Trump doesn't have any crossover appeal. He barely gets all the Republicans for the reasons you articulated. Cheney and, and Kinzinger and Romney and some others have pulled some Republican voters away from Trump's coalition. But in Florida, DeSantis very much has a bipartisan and diverse coalition of support. And if he's able to replicate that nationally, he'll be very politically strong. You think he'll be able to? I don't think so. But I, I think it'll be a different kind of challenge 
than Trump and Trumpism, which is all about getting everything dark and squirrely and ugly under their tent. I think DeSantis would try to replicate the coalition of support he has in Florida. Yeah, and which to me drives me somewhat crazy in the fact that, and look, I've said this so many times, including on your show, I like Joe Biden. I like him as a person. I think he's empathetic. I think he's doing a great job. And I know, obviously, the Jim Jordans of the world, uh, now that he's holding the gavel for oversight, I'm 100% certain that they're going to try to Im, you know, file articles of impeachment against Biden for things like Afghanistan. And we talked about this you know, on, on your show. I think Afghanistan was a success. For Joe Biden, it was a nightmare for the United States for four decades. But at the end of the day, he extricated over 130,000 people from Afghanistan. The two hardest things about war is getting in and getting out. And I'm not making that up. That's from listening to generals talk on, uh, on television, getting in and getting out. It's no different than, I guess, flying an airplane. Once you're in the air. You're just cruising along. It's the takeoff and then the landing. So here they extricated 130,000 people. Now, 13 people, I think, did die, but that was from a suicide bomber. I mean, we had more than 13 people die just yesterday in the Bronx. So I get it. And nobody, and I'm sorry for the families of the people who had died. It was an ugly extrication. But at the end of the day, so what? 130,000 well, men, I would call that a success. I, I leave my personal views on this aside because I think if you worked in the Bush administration, nobody cares about your personal views about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I'll, I'll concede that point. I'll say in terms of where the public is, I think you're right. I think the public, I think 97% of the public is exactly where you are. They've wanted out for a very long time. I think the truth about Afghanistan is that while it was a bigger coalition, it was it, it never went much better than the war in, in, in Iraq. I mean, it was a very difficult effort. Now, I believe the equities of the men and women of the military who felt like they left their brothers and sisters of war behind should be addressed and prioritized. And the fact that some American veterans are still upset that their translators and other people who risked their lives to help them were not um, taken out with American service members is a legitimate thing for the country to grapple with and rectify. But I think you're absolutely right. I think the public hasn't wanted to be there for a long time. And I think it's impossible and unfair to sustain a war that doesn't have overwhelming support from the American public. Yeah, 40, 40 plus years. It's, a, it's more, than, more than enough time. You know, and the funny thing is I love listening to Donald when he's, when he's bitching and moaning about how messed up, you know, the Afghan, uh, you know, extrication was and so on. The funny thing is, if I was sitting with him on a debate stage, I would say, oh, yeah, Professor Trump, why didn't you do it when you were in office? You know, it's easy to sit back and criticize, which he's so good at doing. But why didn't you do something while you were in office? Why didn't you put an end to the war and then just call everybody back? I mean, clearly you have the power to do that. Yeah. He wanted to. I think he wanted to, right? So he says. And then, of course, they probably turned around and told him, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be ugly. Let the next guy do it. Or if by chance you happen to have won the re-election, 
then we'll try to figure something out. But right now, it's too close. And if you try to do something and it doesn't go right, it's going to be a mar on your uh, on your already blemished fucking record. You know? <laughs> Nice <laughs> I mean, could, could his record get any shittier? I mean, it's funny. I love when people turn around and say to me, you know, Donald was great for this country. He did so much. Look at the economy. How come people don't understand that the president does not run the economy? You know, we live in a global economy. The fact that, for example, there are issues in China create supply chain issues. The fact that there's the war in Russia uh, versus Ukraine to create supply chain and product issues and the same thing that's going on all over the world. Um, why don't they understand this? Why is it that everything that they claim that was a result of Trump, in fact, is not? I think, look, I think that I mean, we've gone around and around about why the criminal and civil cases into his businesses matter. I think the most important impact is that they strip him of his brand, which means more to him than even to American politics. They, st I think people thought people have romanticized the idea of an outsider for a long, for as long as I've worked in politics. And I think what they thought they were getting in Trump was the character from the apprentice you're fired. Um, but you know, we, we learned that Trump can't even fire his own people. That's why he tweeted it or had other people do it. I mean, you know that better than anyone. Yeah, I remember when we fired Corey Lewandowski. That was the funnest of anything that I did. He, it was decided, Don Jr., myself, and Matt Calamari, we met him in the conference room on 25. We turned around and we asked him to bring his computer. He had no idea. With that, before I could even open my mouth, Don Jr. turns around and says, Corey, you're fired. Get the fuck out of here. Right? And Corey's sitting there and he's like, he keeps coming back. I mean, he's like a, a cockroach, right? You can't kill him politically. No, no, it's more like a fungus. <laughs> what know? did he do? I, I forget this. This is when Manafort comes in, right? Well, what Corey did is Corey had lied. He was also constantly contacting the media and placing negative stories about Ivanka and Jared. Uh, I mean, oh. in, he would do this on a regular basis. And if, in fact, he didn't like something that you had said uh, as a journalist or as a uh, network personality, he would put you in what he would term to be the penalty box. And you can't get out of the penalty box until you do something that he would want you to do. I mean, he was basically worthless, but because he was so cheap, I mean, it was like $2,000 a week. Um, is what he got paid. Everybody else wanted like a million dollars in order to run the campaign. But it was good that we got rid of him. However, you're right. Like, you know, like a fungus, you know, you know, it's, he's back. It's like a wart. You know, you just can't get rid of it. Yeah. Nitrogen blasts the shit out of that thing. But when you keep sticking your hands in the fucking toilet of Trump, what happens? The shit comes back, right? I mean, there's no other way to kind of describe it. Now, why did he hate Ivanka and Jared? Because that pattern repeats itself, right? They're always one of the, like, so then Kelly would go on to hate Ivanka and Jared. It means so it's all about power. It's Corey wanted to be the man. He wanted to be the one and only guy by Trump's side. He wanted to be the guy that Trump called at four in the morning and 11 at night. He wanted to be the guy regularly, you know, um, call to come up and to sit in on every meeting and to be involved and basically he want that's what he wanted the problem is when jared and ivanka you know really got involved with the campaign they 
took a leadership role uh, into it, which, again, stymied Corey's mental ambitions, right? Because he had been mentally masturbating about that for a very long period of time. And then it was really funny watching him, you know, as we went down and we watched him escorted out of the building, his computer taken, everything locked out. I mean, it was, um, it was a very interesting, you know, time. But he's a clever little fuck. And then what he did is he started making sure that he used all of the relationships that he created, went back on television, specifically Fox, uh, fight with uh, people like Chris Cuomo on CNN and others. And he would go there and he would constantly um, praise Donald. And that's all you need to do was to praise Donald. And then Corey's name started resurfacing, you know, He's not that bad. He wasn't that bad. Maybe I shouldn't have. You know, maybe I was, maybe you guys pushed me into it and so on. And Don and Eric and Ivanka and everybody, we'd all come in there and say, you understand that he's freaking nuts. I mean, I caught him once stumbling. He was drunk off his ass on the corner of 60th and Park. He had just come out of a bar. And I see him walking past me, drunk off his ass. And then I ended up taking him to over to Lavo because I, I had to put some food into his mouth. He starts trying to order drinks. I know the folks there. So I said, just give him like a ginger ale. He'll think it's a scotch or give him a, a seltzer with lemon. He was so drunk, he couldn't even tell. He fell asleep at the table holding a slice of pizza. I have photos of it. I've actually I posted it on my Twitter, you know, just, you know, further to show what a putz he is. So, all right, let me move on because I could shit on Corey all day long here. But let's share on somebody else for a second here. So let's go to Kevin McCarthy and the goon squad now running the house and claiming that they themselves will get to the truth of everything from the insurrection to Hunter Biden. But the truth does not favor Republicans in either of these two instances. You think that their twisted version of events will end up making a difference with voters and is it possible that all of their sham investigations will ultimately backfire on them? You know, the thing about, uh, I'm going to sneeze. <gasps> so I think I sneezed. Bless you. <laughs> How come you sneeze on mine? I've never seen you in all the hours I've spent with you on MSNBC. You've never sneezed on your show. Unbelievable. No respect. I sneezed, I sneezed on the air with you, I think. I sneezed on the air last week. Um, so I think that... Here's what I think about the investigations. And this is why I was asking about Jared and Ivanka. So Jared and Ivanka blow through what I was talking about with the, the Democrats, right? This norm of nepotism. There are no laws, but there's like a norm that you don't have your, your kids in the White House. So Trump blows through this norm. Jared and Ivanka go in. They have extremely senior roles in the, in the West Way. No one knows what they do, but we know Jared was texting on WhatsApp with MBS and all manner of foreign leaders. There's no evidence that like anyone caged those exchanges. They don't go into the files for CIA or NSA or you know, it's like lost to, to, to the history of Trump. No one's ever interested in knowing or having any oversight of what Trump and Ivanka do. And now they want to investigate Hunter Biden who suffers or suffered from the disease of addiction um, and, and had business dealings that are very much under scrutiny, you know, by the, Biden era Justice Department cases inherited from the Trump and Barr era Justice Department. And so I think I think on two levels, one, it is one of the most flagrant 
examples of hypocrisy. Um, it won't stop the Republicans, but it might give the voters some pause. And two, I think that there are very few people in America who haven't been touched by the epidemic of drug addiction or alcohol, alcoholism or something. And so I think when you talk about Hunter, because those of us in the media don't really know how to talk about those issues very, very well, very thoughtfully, very honestly, the, the public is a little bit ahead of us. And I think the Hunter file, the Hunter issue is in in Republicans' minds, it, it's this gold mine that in, in real politics, it, I really don't think it is. I, I think that you know, to the degree that Hunter broke a law. And I think it's very clear that the Justice Department is looking at that. It's very clear he could be charged with something. But in terms of, you know, Jim Jordan, you know, Inspector Clouseau without a jacket on and his little, you know, mean, nasty, petty vendetta committee, they're going to find something that Barr's Justice Department and Garland's Justice Department won't, I think is ludicrous on its face. But I think, you know, the point that the Republicans, especially Jim Jordan and his goon squad are looking for as well, it's not about the drug addiction, because you're right. There's not a person in this country that doesn't know someone um, or be intimately close to someone. I lost two of my oldest friends to drug addiction, but, you know, both of them. And you know, I miss them both every single day. Um, that's not the angle that they're going. They're now talking Burisma. Right. Why is it that Hunter Biden was involved in Burisma? And so, you know why? Because his last name is Biden. For the same reason that Jared got two billion dollars from the Saudis, if not worse. You know, maybe just to have him on the board was good in order to raise money for Burisma or to portray something. That's not the illegal act being on a board because you happen to be the son uh, or a cousin or a nephew or a brother, whatever, of a former vice president or a president either. The crime would be if he used his relationship to his father in order to benefit Burisma in any way. That's illegal lobbying, so to speak. It's a fairer violation uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a lobbying violation. And there are consequences for that. Right, but I think but Barr if, had that as a mandate to investigate the whole time he was there. I think it's been it's been under investigation for right. years now. And I think if there's criminality there, I mean, what I've seen of Garland, and, I think he would relish the opportunity to prove he's not political and charge Hunter if he thinks there's a, a winnable case. And do you think that they wouldn't have? I mean, it's funny because, you know, these guys are like, this Republican goon squad, they're like, Fucking Houdini. It's like, you know, okay, watch, watch, watch what I'm doing here. There's a computer and there's information on the Hunter Biden laptop, right? That that's going to be the end of Joe Biden. It's going to be the end of Hunter, that there's documents that show that there's a communications going on and it's improper and so on and so forth. So why don't you release the documents? Do you really think for a second that while that, while Trump was president, and they may have had access to that information that they would not have released it. One, to beat him in the re-election. And second, simply now to hurt it. I have yet to see a single document that actually purports what this Republican goon squad is looking. And I do think it's going to backfire on them. I think people are really sick and tired of the bullshit. It's like your job is not, as you 
appropriately put it, your petty, um, you know, your petty vendettas, but rather it's really more now about legislating for the country and try to bring honor and decency back to the country, something that was so desperately damaged under the Trump administration. I mean, look at how badly people view the Department of Justice today. I do, based on everything that's happened to me, and I don't stop talking about it, and I won't until this change. Listen, I, I, I agree with you that politically it'll backfire, but you look at what happened in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you look what happened in San Francisco, California, we live in a moment where political violence isn't, you know, some outlier, far-fetched possibility. It is happening at, a, at an increasingly um, alarming rate. And there was Caesar Syak and his pipe bombs. Um, and then there's been, you know, Paul Pelosi. There's been a shooter in New Mexico. And it's clear that disinformation or misinformation is consumed by people who are prone to violence and armed to the hilt. Um, and so I, I think it's dangerous in other ways, even if it doesn't bring about political damage for the Biden. So let me then ask you this. How much damage do you think that Kevin McCarthy and the House can actually perpetrate on um, on the country? I mean, there are their ideas, their ideology. It's really not popular with most Americans, especially, you know, their priority to outlaw abortion rights nationwide. And so, so what can they really get done? And what what do you think that they're going to end up doing that will ultimately pass in the Senate? I don't, I don't think much of anything. Look, I think that 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 the the deal with the devil that McCarthy did may move him closer to Mitch McCarthy, right? Where placating the Trump wing of the Republican Party deprives him of his lifelong political goals. Mitch McConnell's in the minority for one reason. He refused to, you know, use his spine to weigh in on behalf of more normal, more acceptable, more palatable candidates. That's why Mitch McConnell's in the minority a second time. Kevin McCarthy eked out a majority, but it's not really a majority because Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene are in charge of the agenda. He can't, he can't sneeze without their green light. And they're not interested in any of the things that have the potential to improve Republicans' political faith. They're not interested in looking at inflation. And I'm not saying there's anything that can happen in the political arena that solves these problems, but they do have the potential to sort of break through the political conversation. Everything they plan on transmitting as Republicans in power in Washington feeds the fringes. The investigations feed the fringes. I mean, you and I have been talking about Merrick Garland is doing a pretty good job doing nothing to hold Trump accountable and making clear he's unafraid to go after Hunter Biden. So to sort of outflank him seems like a waste of time. I think that the idea that they're going to go expunge the impeachment, I mean, I mean, people view it as settled. And you're right. Their first act was to pass two more laws limiting abortion. Donald Trump is critical of how Republicans handled the issue of abortion after Roe was overturned. So in his bizarre reptilian way, even he has this spidey sense that the politics are not a winner. Yeah, they're not. I mean, you know what's amazing? The fact that we have somebody like Kevin McCarthy and the same last name as Joseph McCarthy, right? right. And the whole kind con- I mean, is it not? It's so 
perfect. It's like you couldn't make this shit up if you were writing it for a fucking television show, right? Think about McCarthyism, right? The definition, the political practice of publicizing accusations of disloyalty or subversion with insufficient regard to evidence. Hello, Kevin, right? That's you, my brother. And then the use of methods of investigation and accusation regarded as unfair in order to suppress opposition. Is this not is this not Kevin McCarthy and exactly what this gang is doing? Yeah, and and I think that this is always going to be this was always what they were going to do, but I think the plot twist was the absence of a red wave. Um, people rejected the crazy stuff. People were not that into what the Republicans were selling, but Kevin has to, you know, go for the hard stuff because that's how he became speaker. It, it's a real, it's a real sort of cross pressuring. that could be a giant political liability for the Republicans. Um, again, if the electorate remains engaged, if the extremism and the election denialism continues to, as it did in New Mexico and San Francisco, fuel actual political violence. I mean, that is a terrifying new normal. Um, not just for high-level elected officials who have access to security, but for volunteer election officials who don't. Um, so I, I think they're in a lot of deep political doo-doo, but they don't have a breaking system anymore. Like, it won't stop them. I mean, but thank you, Kevin, for having the right last name so that Webster's Dictionary will not have to then add another, another term, you know, for an insurrectionist piece of shit, right? For another lying scumbag. So, look, here's the biggest problem that we have in America right now. We're so divided, the divisiveness between the parties really ends up falling on who? On us as the American citizen, right? Because nothing is getting done. Is there any hope that Republicans in either the House or the Senate will end up working across the aisle in order to get things done for the people that put them there, right? Is it your opinion that Republicans are still interested in creating policy for the people? Is it, I mean, technically what I'm asking, is there any common ground that can be found anymore that will benefit us? We'll find out with the debt ceiling fight, right? Like we'll know the answer to that question in a week. And I think the conventional wisdom about, you know, some people like that still exist in the Senate is, is more likely to be true than people like that existing in the house. I mean, I think that, I mean, I'm not sure who they are. We've talked about Mitt Romney a little bit. He doesn't, he's not a nihilist. I mean, I think he would be interested. Listen, Mitch McConnell hopes the answer to that question is yes. That's why he traveled with Joe Biden to promote the infrastructure bill. So I, I think there are Republicans who would like the answer to that question to be yes, when it serves them politically and no, when that serves them politically. And therein lies the problem. You can't be for governing and doing the right thing when you think you can get away with it politically and then back all of Trump's lunatic candidates when you think that serves you politically. And that's why the Republican Party is broken. That's why it doesn't exist as a governing party. It's just, you know, sort of a political shell of a party that I was once a part of that I once cared about. It's not functioning as a political party, the way the Democratic Party functions as a political party. I mean, look, there are mod moderate, you know, House Republicans and so on. Um, obviously, it'd be great if there were more, <laughs> but there there isn't. Um, I kind of think what's going to happen with the debt ceiling is going to be 
sadly similar to what was happening with the COVID relief package. You may remember when Trump decided to put out the COVID relief package because Americans needed it. I mean, you know, yes, Trump was great for the uber rich, no doubt about that. And they thank him every single day for doubling and tripling their net worth. But at the end of the day, the bulk of this country needed that that stimulus package. They needed that money. And you may remember that they refused to vote when it was Biden who wanted them to put it out. I mean, you may remember also that Trump decided that they could not send out the PPP money because it had Steve Mnuchin's name on the check as opposed to his. Right. And everybody. What are you doing, Steve? Everybody wants my name at the bottom of the check. It's my money. It's my, why would you put your name on? I mean, if that's not a telltale that this guy needs an, ins- an asylum, not the, the Oval Office, I mean, I don't really know what is. But my question then to you is, I'm going to move on. Is there anyone that you're particularly saddened to see go to the dark side? I mean, are there people that you admired on the right that have disappointed you, for example, like a Lindsey Graham, who used to be, I mean, he used to be considered a fairly pleasant human being. And are you surprised that your old boss, I mean, President George Bush, hasn't succumbed to Trumpism? I'm not surprised that Bush hasn't succumbed to Trumpism. And um, I also understand why he, he doesn't do more. I am, I am so... I was angry for a long time because I started speaking. I called Trump an embarrassment to the Republican Party in 2015. I was on The View and he attacked me. And I thought, well, you know what? The rest of the party will come around. I'm just sort of I'm out there. So I'm saying it first. And um, I was I was heartbroken that people stayed silent. I remember talking to Chris Christie after the Access Hollywood tape. Broke. And I said, well, now you'll you'll step away. Right. And his take was sort of in for a dime in for a dollar. And I was disgusted and more than anything, heartbroken that all these people that I thought sort of shared, you know, people outside of politics think it's weird when we talk about principles, but principles slash beliefs um, didn't do anything. And that no one ever quit the White House when he would attack Joe and Mika and talk about Mika bleeding from her face. And when he talked about Megyn Kelly bleeding from every, or, you know, I couldn't believe that people stayed on the ride because they didn't want to get off because they felt like they'd been through, you know, so much. It's like, he's just a, 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 a B rate, half-assed, insecure, nasty politician. What, what is the, what is the magic tie to him? And I'd never seen anything like it. And I worked for a president. People didn't hesitate to shit all over him all the time. And maybe that was justified, right? Maybe his policies were so controversial that it called for that. But it certainly wasn't normal to have that kind of fealty. And, and the fact that it's still there suggests to me that they agree with him. And I don't know what other conclusion to reach other than that maybe they were secretly racist and misogynist and corrupt themselves. I, you know, and I, I, I didn't want that to be true for a long time. But he's gone. He's politically impotent. He's a loser. He's he's not doing anything inspired. We don't even talk about the fact that there's no library. He's having dinner with Nick Fuentes and Kanye West. He's not doing anything for the country because the presidency that, that he had wasn't about the country. It was about him.
So I, I used to be very upset in all of them. I now think that I was wrong to be upset. I was wrong to be mad and sad. And I must have been wrong about them all along. You know, it's funny. I think there is actually a Trump presidential library. Um, <laughs> no, I was walking, I was walking uh, through the park the other day. And there's a porta potty, and on the top of it, it says Trump Presidential Library. <laughs> and, and I thought that was absolutely brilliant. I think all porta potties should have a presidential sign on it with the Trump Presidential Library name, uh, uh, you know, embossed across the top. I think it's genius, and I think it's true. But it is amazing, right? That they're not even talking about a presidential library. I mean, that's that to me is really amazing because it goes to show you that he didn't accomplish shit when he was there. You know, which again, to me, if that's the case, why would you give a guy a second chance? Why would you give Diaper Donald another chance to? Think up the Oval Office and to fuck up our country. To me, it makes no sense at all. And when you see this, Lindsey Graham and the rest of these idiots, don't forget, I listened to so many of these Republicans bash the shit out of me at the House Oversight Committee. And then they did it again many more times, seven more times when we were doing the hearings in the skiff. Yeah. Um, I would sit there and I would marvel at the fact that these people are trying to pick up the mantle of Donald, which made no sense to me at all, considering yeah. at the end of the day, he wouldn't piss on them if they were on fire, if that required him crossing the street, or even if it required him to open up his zipper. That's really the right. truth. But they're so, they're so brainwashed into this cult, which, right. makes, which basically makes them stupid too, and no... They have no business, as far as I'm concerned, wearing a congressional pin. That's just my opinion. But then what about people, Nicole, but like Liz Cheney? I mean, she, she distinguished herself as a true American hero. Whether you like her or you don't, she really acted like a true Amer like a patriot. But does she have a shot at the presidency in this current, you know, MAGA-crazed environment? I mean, do you think that there are enough sane Republicans waiting out there in the wings for someone like Liz Cheney to come along and save us all? I don't know. I don't think there are. But here's the thing about Liz Cheney that we have to just keep it real. I, I admire her very much. Um, her and Adam Kinzinger. But Liz Cheney voted for Trump in November of 2020 after he got millions of Americans, you know, sort of either sick with COVID for being indifferent about masks and, and, and other remediations, after he talked about a rigged election for months, after he politicized the Justice Department, she voted for him in November. Now that she had a red line and it was the insurrection, it says something great about Liz Cheney, but says something terrifying about the rest of the Republican Party that a deadly insurrection whose mission statement was to kill Mike Pence only brought Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger back from the brink is appalling. It's just appalling. I mean, there were a few others who voted for his impeachment, but nobody else who worked to hold him accountable politically or legally or otherwise. So I, I don't think that there is a base of support for Liz Cheney, but the sickness is that is that that no one even thinks it's worth joining her efforts. She didn't become a Democrat. She, you, you know, she didn't change her views on anything. And I don't think we need more moderates in the Republican Party. I think it would be great. It's a, it's a fantasy of mine. I think we need more people willing to tell the truth. 
So I don't even, I, I used to want there to be more moderate so that our politics became, you know, more centrist. Now I would settle for hardcore conservatives like Liz Cheney who were simply willing to tell the truth. And I think that's what's, if I had to diagnose what's wrong with the right, it's that they are allergic to the truth. They are afraid of the truth. They're disinterested in the truth. And they're so afraid of it. They purged Liz Cheney the day that she made clear she was done with Trump and Trumpism after the January 6th insurrection. Can't argue with you on that one. So let me change, let me change gears for a second and talk to you because a lot is being made of the Twitter files, right? Uh, by claiming that they've been censored. I'm referring to a lot of the Republicans uh, that, are, that are out there. Now it looks like Trump might be reinstated to Twitter and possibly Facebook as well. So how dangerous do you think it is for all of us if Trump becomes reinstated to those social media platforms? Look, I, I mean, we've been talking about political violence. Um, I think anyone in the arena, I'm sure you live with this too, um, deals with threats all the time toward them and their family. And it's terrifying. Um, that will get worse. That will become the norm. And as we see in New Mexico and San Francisco and January 6th, Stephen Ayers, I think, was that insurrectionist that testified about being in the Capitol on January 6th and said, once Trump tweeted, go home, I went home. I mean, he has a power and a command and control over insurrectionists. So say the insurrectionists and sworn testimony on Capitol Hill. So I think it's I think it's a dangerous moment. And I think that the things and the lies and the election denialism, which still animates all of Trump's public statements, have a tie to politically motivated violence. So I think it's really scary. <laughs> I find the whole thing to be very funny, to be honest with you. And I've been on the opposite side of Trump's mean tweets about me. He just put one out the other day about me on his Truth Social about what a disgrace I am as a lawyer because I went in and I spoke with the district attorney here in New York, uh, obviously about Trump. Uh, so he, of course, put that out. And that, of course, reinvigorates all of these stupid assholes yeah. on social media. and so. But the part I think is really funny about if Trump accepts being re, uh, you know, put back on the platforms of Twitter, Facebook, and others, is it acknowledges that yet another Trump company failed, failed yeah. and fucking failed miserably. miserably. Join, so so Truth Social, join, join the group, right? The gang of Trump Stakes and Trump yeah. Mortgage and Trump Vodka <laughs> and Trump Baja Mexico, California and Trump Entertainment Resorts and Trump yeah. Airlines and Trump first marriage, Trump second marriage, and, and Trump third marriage. I mean, just join the ranks of the failures because yeah. that's what it means. And what I thought was great is at least he got rid of Devin Nunes, who obviously, right. I don't know if he's still involved in Truth Social or not, but at least he got rid of Devin Nunes, you know, who's just I another jerk off. I thought the same thing. And, and I think it is, it is all those things. It's an, it's an acknowledgement that he can't get his message out on his own failed platform. So um, it's sort of wonderful in that way. And it is funny, uh, but I don't think that will stop him. And I think having more followers is a bad thing, not a good thing.
Yeah, though a lot of his followers happen to be bots. I mean, that's unfortunately a big problem. It's true. It's unfortunately a big problem right now on Twitter. Something I actually spoke to Elon Musk about about uh, three weeks ago. uh, Really? Yeah. And I said to him, what are you going to do about bots and bot farms? I said, if you're really concerned about misinformation, disinformation and malinformation, the best thing that you can do is take the fake the fake um, conversation out, which right. is being promoted and really um, hyped by these bots and these bot farms that jump right onto these algorithms. And, you know, you can get 100 people responding in an instant, in a split second. But then if you go to any of these people, they joined in 2013 and they have three followers, um, right. you know, and it's just it's stupid. And it's a joke. Why does it, what did he say? Is he interested? They're, work, in they're working on it. They're trying, they're trying to do it. And I recommended that he created, in order to be on Twitter, you have to have, for example, a two part authentication process that it should be tied to your cell number. And that cell right. number can only be used for one account. You you know, that? Right. And he was like, you know, it's not a bad idea. I'm going to speak to my people about it. We'll see what he does. I think he does want to make it work, but Twitter is a real platform and it's a real environment for sharing opinions and points of views which are fine i don't care if you agree with me or not just be real be a real human being as opposed to these again paid for bot farms now i want to jump to another area because you supported the legalization of same-sex marriage and in fact i understand that you put out an amicus curi brief that was submitted to the united states supreme court and that you've also been a champion of civil rights in general. But today's Supreme Court, it's, they're not listening to the will of the people. So how do you think that that will affect the future of civil rights in this country? And am I wrong to worry that the Supreme Court is now too compromised to make good decisions uh, or any decisions for the country? Listen, it's the most opaque uh, branch of government. So I, I don't know... You know, I don't know the answer to any of those questions, but I I know from working on the public relations side that as an institution, it's it's in crisis, and it seems to believe that's true. Also, if you look at the public statements of the conservative and liberal justices, um, the the problem is that Roe and Casey were decided with justices appointed by Republican and Democratic presidents. Um, Dobbs you know, overturned Roe in a strict party line vote, which is not how it should be when you're removing a constitutional right from every American woman and every American family. And so I think that when you've got justices using words like stench to describe the court, and you already have a feeling of unease about the fact that very, very complex and consequential decisions like Casey and Roe were decided in a, in a bipartisan, and I only mean justices appointed by Democrats and Republicans, manner, and now you've got rights taken away in a hyper-partisan manner. Um, the, 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 the description of the court having a stench of partisanship and of being reverse engineered, she said that because Republicans in the state legislature said, now that we have Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch, we can do the case to overturn abortion access. And I think that we can't solve this for them. 
they have to decide the crisis is so bad to go from 60% public approval in 2000, when many Americans viewed the court as deciding, you know, weighing in on a presidential election to be 20% less popular today is extraordinary. And so I think it's an institution in grave crisis. I think most of us, myself included, don't really know how to cover it because it is so opaque. Um, and I think the fact, you know, institutions that are healthy don't leak. You know, the Dobbs decision leaking is, is a sign of bad health. I had a journalist on yesterday who said they haven't released any opinions, so they're, they're way behind pace. That's a sign of professional paralysis. It's not a sign of health. And I think the ill health of one of the three branches of government is one of the most underreported and under understood stories of our time. Couldn't say it any better. It's Supreme Court's got so many, so many issues. And I think a lot of it has to do with the quality of the individuals that Trump had nominated for it and the process to which that went, you know, the process, I think, also takes away from their popularity and the demise of people's confidence in the Supreme Court. Look, I'm dealing with an issue right now that is the direct result of the Supreme Court's nonsense, which is the Bivens case, which gives U.S. citizens the ability to sue the government um, for violating their, their rights. Well, they believe that it's not a Supreme Court's uh, or the court's decision that it should rather be left to Congress. Congress! We can't get shit passed through Congress. Now, all of a sudden, that they're going to end up focusing on this? I mean, their only focus right now is destroying each other on both sides. So I don't know how the Supreme Court is going to end up accomplishing you know, anything other than shifting it back to the state, shifting it back to Congress in order to make decisions. And you can't say that's their ideology because they're very activist when they want to be involved. You know, the, the, sure. the choosing, taking a... So I think there are a lot of pieces of evidence that, that the court has some real problems and, and, and challenges. I think their activism around voting rights is very troubling as well. Um, and so I, I think there are a lot of good reasons for that Gallup number to plunge 20 points um, in a short period of time. It's the, most, it's the most dramatic drop of any institution in that period of time. And people have never really liked Congress. People have always been skeptical of the media. But the court um, to plunge like that is extraordinary. Yeah, well, I'm one of them. So let me ask you this, because you have you have a bird's eye view of what's going on in the country. I mean, from your vantage point as a news anchor, what's the greatest problem in your mind facing our democracy today? I mean, again, in your opinion, are we still veering dangerously close to autocracy or do you think that we've dodged that bullet what's what do you think is our greatest problem i think that our greatest problem is 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 braided together um it is it is disinformation out there um being consumed by people who are susceptible to the most hateful things out there and I think the rise in anti-Semitism, the rise in racism, the acceptance and greenlighting and permission structure around misogyny, all this is terrifying to me. But I think it is all sort of this, this kindling. And then I think what lights it on fire 
is the disinformation that's so readily available to fuel all of those you know, maybe pre-existing hates. So I'm, I'm really worried about what's out there. I'm, you know, I sort of believe garbage in, garbage out. Remember that movie, Super Size Me? The guy ate Sure, sure. You know, I think, I think that, is, that is the best analogy to our body politic, right? Garbage in, garbage out, garbage in, garbage out. And it manifests itself in, um, you know, violence. It manifests itself in hatred. It manifests itself in racism. It manifests itself in, you know, kids being targeted for their sexuality or their diversity. I mean, I, so I, I think that is the thing that keeps me up at night. Yeah, well, you have every right to. And it goes right back to the previous question when we were talking about Facebook and Twitter and allowing Trump to re-emerge on that. And it also goes back to, again, my conversation with Elon uh, talking about the bots because these people believe every what they read and they are all parts of these chat uh, groups that are filled with misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, and they just keep perpetuating it. And then you have the bots that go ahead and put it out there. And so what it does is it it solidifies in their mind the truthfulness and the accuracy of the misinformation that was originally being sowed. It's It really is truly incredible. But you know, Nicole, as I told you when we first started, the hour goes by quick. You see how if we were on MSNBC, right? Could you imagine how fast the hour goes by? So I have one last question for you. Okay. Okay. So I've said over and over again and many times again on your show, which by the way, I happen to love Deadline White House. I think it's it's absolutely great. I've become like a fan, a fan favorite Friday, right? Um, you know, on the show. That I don't think that Trump will make it to the 2024 primaries. But I am, of course, open to other people's opinions. That's just merely mine. What do you see in the future for Trump? And if Trump drops off the national radar, do you think that Trumpism will die with him? Or do you think that it's here to stay? I I think if he dropped off the political radar, our politics would get a little better, but we've dropped so far. I don't think it would solve everything, not by a long shot. Um, you know him better than me and his sort of, you Unfortunately. know, threshold, his threshold for humiliation. So th- that that's a driver, right? He doesn't want to risk losing, so he might not run. I, I know that the dream never dies, you know? I mean, it's not like they wake up if, if they've only served one term and say, or, or if they've lost, if they've run and lost. And, and don't want to be president anymore. So I, I have always thought that the good money was on him running again. And the chance of being successful is certainly there. I mean, his supporters used to like him, not as much. But um, he does still have a base of support out there. But I, I, I am less confident of all of that because our, our politics seems just increasingly fractured. And I'm not I'm not sure what sane person jumps into the arena anymore. Yeah, I, again, I'm just going to state my opinion onto it. I don't think he runs for some of the reasons you said, and then more, I think, the legal issues that are confronting him. I think the uh, wizard has been exposed, like the Wizard of Oz, right? They pull it down, and it's really a little guy pulling on strings with blowing fire out of his ass and all that People, I think, are sick and tired of this Trump. It's called Trump fatigue, right? We're yeah. sick and tired of Trump derangement and Jared, syndrome. Jared and Ivanka have it. You know, they're out. So 
you know, I think they're, I think they're out for other reasons, by the way. Let's not, you know, if they could make more money off of it, they don't need to. They've already suckered Saudi Arabia for two billion. He's out there. I mean, they're pulling down a hundred million dollars a year, you know, and so on. They don't want anything to do with their father because they know that he's he's just destructive. And Jared doesn't want to end up like his father, Charlie, in prison, though. I think I think Jared is under investigation right now for many really? things. Well, I think by the FBI. However, I also think that if Jared does not get prosecuted, that it con- it confirms my suspicion that Javanka were the leaks regarding the documents at Mar-a-Lago and that he made some sort of a deal, uh, a non-prosecution deal with government. Um, you know, to provide that testimony, that documentation or what have you. I always believe that he was a leak. Um, Or as Trump would say, he's just a leaker. He's a disgusting (laughs) leaker. And they should be, they should be locked up and they should throw the key away forever. Right? That's amazing. Because he's a, he's a leaker. Well, Nicole, I thank you for joining me. I will be seeing you, I'm sure, very, very soon. Thank Um, you, my friend. Lots going on. Lots for us to continue to talk about. And now for today's mea culpa. Shakespeare complained of the Lord's delays being one of the great hardships of living life in a civil society. And that's still true today. The wheels of justice grind slowly, but they do grind on until the bones of the guilty are ground to dust. Now, poetry aside, eventually we all get what we deserve. I mean, not all of us, maybe some of us. Life isn't fair, and terrible things happen to innocent people all the time. Um, hello? Some killers actually get away with it. But I'm gonna say less so now that cell phone towers and cameras are keeping track of us. But still, every so often, someone gets away with murder. Today I'm watching the case against Alec Baldwin play out, and I can't tell you who's actually responsible for that poor cinematographer's death. Yes, Alec pulled the trigger, but someone else loaded the gun, and an assistant director told Baldwin that the gun was cold. That guy cut a plea deal because he clearly, the gun wasn't cold. It was loaded with a live round that killed Helena Hutchins. I mean, how did a live round get into the gun? How did it get onto the set? It's hard to say, but rumors abound. I mean, the set was run pretty loosey-goosey, like lots of these independent film sets are, where there's not enough money, not enough crew, and lots of long hours. The most persistent rumor involves a disgruntled crew person who slipped that bullet into the gun to make a point. Another describes a late-night drunken game of shoot the can in which the gun was used and then not cleaned afterward. The weird thing is, no live bullets were supposed to be on that set at all. There was a zero bullet policy on rust. So again, how did that bullet even get there? Truth is, we may never know. The bottom line is, Alec Baldwin was the producer of the film. And in film, as in life, the buck is supposed to stop with the boss. Hence, Baldwin was the boss, and now he could get up to six and a half years in prison. Now, I take no pleasure in that, and I'm really unimpressed by anyone who does. I don't care if you hate Baldwin for his politics, or his spot-on impersonation of Trump or not. To revel in the misery of others is just really shitty. 
The red hot Megan and Harry debate also sickens me. I mean, it's fucking enough already. The kid has an instant bestseller. I mean, that should count for something. But we as a culture can't wait for fate to catch up to our celebrities. We have a mad desire to be judge as well as jury. Maybe it's because we worry that the rich and the powerful will get away with something that the rest of us wouldn't. But most of us aren't princes or even presidents. But my theory is, the more public your persona, the more eyes that are on you, and the more seriously scrutinized that you're gonna be. And it's hard to keep too many secrets when so many inquiring minds are digging through your trash and taking apart your every word. I think fame actually accelerates fate. That's why I'm not too worried about the Biden document saga. We're gonna know the truth sooner than later. And I'm guessing Biden was more clueless than culpable. Now Biden's no Trump. Trump's fall from grace is a cautionary tale as well as a tragedy. But really fucking entertaining. I know, sometimes it seems like we're just counting the days until Trump and his whole fucking MAGA clown car crashes. But we have no idea what justice for Trump is really gonna look like. But I promise you this, my friends, it is coming. I have faith that the wheels of justice are turning, and that it's just a matter of time before he and the whole fucking lot of his nefarious conservative co-conspirators go down for the crimes that they've committed against the American people. I won't take any joy in his misery, but I do want the law to work. I want to see justice done so that we can go back to something like, like normal. So, to you out there in the mea culpa community, be patient and have faith that in the words of the poet, the bones of the guilty will be ground to dust. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. <laughs>